I think like one of the problems of the European project, uh, and let's focus a bit on EU foreign policy for a minute, has been to, to consider that the beginning of Europe is 1949-1950. And in a way, like, uh, has built itself by cutting itself from its history and including, like, its uh, tradition of foreign policy, including this, this kind of realistic foreign policy tradition. A country that demands moral perfection in its foreign policy will achieve neither perfection nor security. In an era where few countries have the means to back their moral postures on foreign policy, Henry Kissinger's comments should not fall on deaf ears. Kissinger would know about the inefficiency of empty posturing. Born in 1923 in Weimar, Germany, he left his country of birth in 1938 for the United States. Months later, the Allies were trounced by the might of a Nazi war machine. Young Kissinger brought with him many things from all Europe. A German accent, a long-lasting love for his local football club, but more substantially, a realist worldview that had been incarnated in the past by Bismarck and Metternich. The German immigrant fought in World War II with the US Army before becoming one of the most brilliant academic minds in the United States and soon one of the most famous statesmen in the 20th century, serving as National Security Advisor and Secretary of State for Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford. A true American success story for this young European always attempting to see the world as it is, and not how it should be, the 98-year-old Kissinger remains one of the most respected voices on foreign policy. For this episode, we are lucky to have with us Ambassador Gérard Harrault and Jérémy Gallon, each of them having recently published a book on Kissinger's relationship to diplomacy, Europe and realism. In the current geopolitical turmoil, this episode was also an opportunity for fascinating conversation on Europe's and America's relationship to realism and morality in foreign policy. So, on one side of the line, we are so glad to have Gérard Arrault. Gérard Arrault, you're the former French, a former French diplomat. Um, you were the ambassador to the US from 2014 to 2019, to the UN between 2009 and 2014, to Israel from 2003 to 2006, you're also a columnist for Le Point, a distinguished fellow at the Atlantic Council's Europe Centre. And you recently published your diplomatic memoirs called Passport Diplomatique or Diplomatic Passports in 2019 for Grasset. And just published for Taillandier, Kissinger, le diplomate du siècle or Kissinger, the diplomat of the century. On the other side of the line, we have Jérémy Gallon. Uh, Jeremy is the managing and head of sorry managing director and head of McClarty in Brussels, after leading AmCham France, and he's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Europe Centre. You're also a former diplomat yourself, having served from 2015 to 2017 in the European External Action Service as a political advisor to the EU ambassador to the US, and on this topic, you recently published. 
Henry Kissinger l'Européen ou Kissinger the European pour Gallimard. Thank you so much to the both of you for accepting our invitation. We are so glad to be able to host this conversation. And before we begin diving in the conversation on Europe, realism, America and the transatlantic relationship, um, let's just brush a, a brief portrait of Henry Kissinger's life from his upbringing in, in Europe to his political career where he ended up being the National Security Advisor and the Secretary of State of the United States. Uh, Ambassador Ho, your, your book is a portrait of his diplomatic uh, career, but maybe you could also walk us through a little bit through his early life. Thank you very much. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be with you. Uh, yes, I think that that's something which most of the people don't know, and it's a sort of uh, fascinating, the fact that uh, Henri Kissinger was mm. born in 1923 uh, in Germany, uh, coming from an Orthodox Jewish family, and that actually he has lived in Germany during five years under Hitler. Uh, his family at the last moment left Germany only in 1938. So you have to think of the young, young Henri Kissinger. He was 10 in 1953, uh, living through the ordeal, uh, the, the, the sufferings, the fear, the humiliation of, uh, of uh, Nazism, of Hitlerism, till 1938. So when he arrives in New York, in, he's 15, he was 15 years old. Uh, his first language is German, and he's still totally bilingual in German. And actually, when he's speaking in mm. English, as you know, he has, I should say, uh, mm. I, I think, a German accent at least as heavy <laughs> as my French, uh, uh, French, French accent. And last point on this particular side, uh, the particular aspect of his life is that he will never refer to this past. He will never refer to his uh, uh, life under Hitler and to also uh, his Orthodox Judaism, because as you know, if people who know what is Orthodox Judaism, mm. it's a way of life, you know, really, until he was 20, he has really lived through this, uh, this very, very intense uh, religious, uh, but also day-to-day -day, uh, uh, tradition. And uh, um, uh, Jeremy Gallon, in, in your book, you talk a lot about how he has kept some of his European attachments. You talk about his love for football, for example, which might come as a bit of a, a surprise. Um, you talk about maybe his kind of uh, relationship to uh, French intellectuals. On many aspects, he seems to have kept a lot of attraction and a lot of European uh, living style. Yes, first of all, thank you very much for, for hosting me. I, it's a pleasure to be with you. Um, yes, I think like uh, Henry Kissinger has been profoundly uh, shaped by um, his European like uh, youth and uh, and um, and when he arrives in 1938, as uh, stressed by Ambassador Aro, he, he arrives like he's a refugee, and he, he will live like first in a in a neighborhood in in New York uh, where basically you have like mainly uh, uh, Jewish immigrant Jewish refugees. Uh, from German origins, uh, and uh, and it's only when he will join the U.S. Army in 1943 and that he will go uh, to fight with the U.S. Army in Europe, in Germany, uh, that he will really, uh, really immerse himself in, in U.S. culture. But then, mm. like, when he will be back to the U.S. after the war, will study in Harvard University, he will continue to be shaped by European intellectuals. He will build friendships with, you mentioned Raymond Aron, but he will also uh, 
follow like the classes of Hans Morgan Tao. Uh, he will mm. like uh, uh, develop close intellectual friendship with Anna Arendt, with like over mm. like European intellectuals. So uh, in a way, like the European way of thinking will really shape him. And, and in fact, you, you mentioned a, a thing that not many people know about Henry Kissinger, that when he was called Heinz, because like he was born Heinz Kissinger before uh, adopting Henry when he moved in the US, he was an absolute fan of soccer, uh, football at that time. Uh, and he was uh, a fan of like the team of Fürth, uh, which at that time was uh, a great team in Germany, which was his home uh, town. Um, and, uh, and this passion has always accompanied him, even when he was like Secretary of State, National Security Advisor. Uh, every Monday in his briefings, like his advisor was, uh, were putting like the results of the, of the football uh, weekend of the Bundesliga, the German Champions, uh, Championship. And, um, and until recently, he has been a, uh, an avid passionate about football. Mm-hmm. Um, let, um, may, maybe can you walk us through, um, through his later career? How does he go from a young German uh, refugee to America to one of the leading political figures in not just the, the 1960s, 1970s, but even today remains one of the kind of overbearing figures of American foreign policy, Ambassador Hall. Well, I, I try not to be too long. No, first, I think uh, he, he, he arrived in the US and he's mobilized in 1943. And there, you know, he wanted to be an accountant. And there, really going through the testing, you know, that the, the, the young conscripts were going through, they, in a sense, he discovers that he's very, very intelligent, that he has a very high IQ. And, and in the army, actually, he will meet, uh, uh, you know, really a sort of a, a sponsor or, or, or a godfather, uh, a German also, actually, uh, who is older than he is, and that he will be also stunned by the intelligence of the young Kissinger. And it's a fact that all over his life, uh, he had a lot of these people who are going to protect him, uh, who are going to help him, to support him. You know, really, and until uh, Governor Rockefeller, uh, really, when he was uh, himself, was he was mm-hmm. teaching in Harvard. So, so the young accountant, you know, coming from the Jewish neighborhood uh, called the Fourth Reich, actually, in, in, because they were all the, the Jews there were Germans in the 30s. Uh, you know, after the army, uh, he, he really he, he has been told that he, he should go to a quote-unquote good university. He goes to, to Harvard uh, because he's a veteran and Harvard is recruiting a lot of veterans. And there uh, uh, he will very quickly appear as extremely, uh, extremely bright. Bright, but also, and it, all, it will also always follow him. You know, the fact that he's abrasive, ambitious, uh, is elbowing his way up. And I think it's really, so you can have hundreds of, of anecdotes, hostile anecdotes against, against uh, uh, Kissinger. But on, on my side, and that's what I try to explain, you know, when you are like Kissinger, you know, you have a foreign accent, you don't know anything about the social codes. Uh, you don't have any asset, in a sense. Uh, you know, you don't have financial, social, uh, family asset. In a sense, you are a bit obliged to elbow up. You are obliged to trample some 
uh, some toes, and and it's exactly what he did. So very, you know, so he went for 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 uh, Harvard. Uh, he got his PhD, you know, really, uh, and uh, and after that, you know, basically out of che- out the, the luck, he was l- lucky, but also recognition of his of his talents. He became in the late fifties and early sixties one of the mm. best pundits uh, uh, in foreign policy in the in the U.S. because he has a talent also he has many talents but one of his talent is even if he, he has a very heavy German accent is very good and it's still the case now it's very good as presenting a very complex uh, issue in easy terms is simple terms mm. which is not simplistic but he goes to, uh, he has a very good, a real talent to make a distinction between uh, what is essential and what is secondary, uh, the core of the issue from the details of, of, of the issue. Well, th- this is all very helpful background. And, and indeed, one of the, one of the paradoxes of, of Henry Kissinger's life is, you know, how does this um, Orthodox Jew from Germany end up becoming one of the more successful uh, statesmen in, in American foreign policy in the past century? Um, and one of the questions that we'll be dealing with in just a second is how that background uh, of you know being a, being a German, being a European, how that is, how, how that has shaped his uh, worldview and his his view of Europe. Uh, but before we do that, um, Jeremy, obviously um, Henry Kissinger is known as being uh, the uh, the main exponent of realism in in, in the school of thought. Um, can you help, can you try can you elaborate a little bit on what realism meant? Uh, to Henry Kissinger when he was Secretary of State and uh, uh, National Security Advisor, what what is um, uh, realism for him? Yeah, before focusing on on realism, if I may, uh, I would just like to say uh, two things about his background. I think like there is something fascinating in his life, something of a novel, like the fact that this young Jewish man who doesn't speak one word of English when he arrives in uh, mm. in New York Airbor in uh, in 1938 will become Secretary of State and one of the most powerful men in the world uh, is, is just um, <coughs> astonishing. But I think like his background uh, is also a background that has given him like both uh, what I would call an intellectual and a human backbone. And what I mean by mm. this is that when he was at Harvard, he built for 20 years like intellectual friendships that really have shaped him intellectually and that have enabled him to have a deep uh, set of beliefs, conviction that have enabled him when he arrived uh, in the White House at the age of 46 to have a strategic vision, to have a long-term vision. And, and so I think it's, it's very important, in particular in our current times of like uh, where you have people who rise very quickly to the top, but who don't necessarily have a lot of depth, a lot of density. I think it's a very important aspect in the, in the life of Henry Kissinger. And the second thing is that he's also someone who had experienced like many personal tragedies. We mentioned, of course, the fact that he had suffered uh, from like anti-Semitism in his youth, but he also mm-hmm. lost certain members of his family in the, in, during the Holocaust. So he's someone who had experienced really like the history in its worst sense. Uh, he's also someone who experienced like a, a divorce. Uh, he's also someone who had not had an easy time necessarily in Harvard, even though like he was incredibly bright uh, at that time, like for a Jewish man like him, having a, a very strong German accent, like being accepted by the WASP, 
leadership of Harvard University was not easy. So I, I think like uh, uh, he really arrived through his background with this dual like intellectual and human background. Then in terms of realism, um, I think like uh, f- first we have to remember that Henry Kissinger was very reluctant to use the word real politic because he perfectly knew that it would be a, a word used by his opponents to um, remind that he was at the end of the day not really American, that he was European, and so to try to discredit him. And so uh, he was very careful of not using the word real politic that was, of course, uh, reminding of like his European roots. But I think like it was realism, uh, the Kissinger's realism was uh, the realism in the, the best sense for me of the world, the initial sense of the world as it was designed in the in the mid 19th century in Germany by uh, Ludwig von Rauschow, who was a German uh, nationalist at that time, which basically uh, is a kind of pragmatic approach to foreign policy where you try to approach the situation by not being like influenced by emotion, but trying to get a perfect understanding of the political circumstances, the historical circumstances, to try to uh, design an action, a foreign policy that uh, fits your goals, but that also fits the world as it is and not as you would like it to be. And so I think like, uh, I would just conclude by saying that what is striking to me in like uh, Kissinger's realism is that I don't think it was at all deprived from any morality, uh, but just like he had long-term goals and long-term moral goals, and in particular to avoid of having a new chaos that he had experienced in his youth and that could be like a, a nuclear war between the two big superpowers at that time. And so to avoid this, he was indeed ready to make tough choices, sometimes uh, choices that you may criticize, but that he thought were good for his long-term goal. Mm. Uh, Ambassador Rowe, um, you write a lot about the reactions that Kissinger's foreign policy would provoke. It created a lot of discontent on the right and on the left, and I think to this day Kissinger remains one of the controversial figures of American foreign policy. And I think one of the unifying thread of the criticism against Kissinger, both on the right and on the left, was the idea that this you know, German-born diplomat had somewhat perverted the more purity of America uh, with his, as Jeremy was saying, the dirty real politic coming from the old corrupt Europe that the Americans had left centuries ago. The question is, is Amer- America um, inherently allergic to realism? Um, perhaps does it need this dose of moralism, of morality in its foreign policy to be comfortable with itself? And even perhaps maybe unlike Europe, does America need to be this shining city on the hill of the New Jerusalem? Because this is exactly what will generate this international influence it has nowadays. You know, there are several, several very different questions uh, uh, there. Uh, and uh, so I would try to answer, you know, most of them. Uh, the first element is, uh, in a sense, uh, realistic foreign policy uh, is based on the fact that a country uh, really has to ensure its own security uh, while facing its its neighbors, and which means that he has to uh, evaluate very carefully the balance of power, the intentions of the neighbors, 
so that his neighbors don't become a threat. You know, really a good example is in the 30s, the way Britain ignore uh, basically a, a, a German threat and was bullying France uh, into uh, a, a reconciliation with Germany. Uh, that, in a sense, it's something, it's a luxury, it's the U.S. has the extraordinary luxury mm. not to need to do it, because basically it's a continent and its neighbors are not a threat. Really, basically, it's more, the U.S. is more a threat to Mexico uh, that, uh, don't forget, it has invaded Mexico twice and it has taken from Mexico millions of kilometers squares of territory, but he has never been threatened. You know, really, I think Bismarck was saying basically that um, the U.S. were protected by fish, by fishes on the la- on the on the on the east and fishes on the on the west. So, in a sense, the Americans can be quite relaxed, you know, really, and uh, and can, in a sense, decide their own foreign policy. You know, isolationism or interventionism. You know, really, it's more choice than uh, than an obligation. That's the first, the first element. So they can really look upon these Europeans, you know, who are so obsessed by their security or so suspicious of their, of their neighbors. The second aspect is that the U.S. is not an ethnic, religious, or geographic, or historical country. It's an ideological country. You know, it's really people coming from, uh, really fleeing from poverty and persecution to the U.S. and going to the U.S. as the Jerusalem on earth. And uh, and basically, that I should say something very deeply ingrained uh, in the Americans, seeing their own country as the Jerusalem on earth, as something which is uh, totally different from the rest of the world, and of course, totally superior to the rest uh, to the rest of the world. And 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 they need uh, they need moralism as I should say a cloak. Uh, over their policy. You know, really, they are a different country, they are Jerusalem, so they are values, they have superior values. You know, I'm writing a book right now on the foreign policy, French foreign policy between the two world wars, and I have a collection of, of quotations by President Wilson, with, which are totally amazing. You know, basically, Wilson saying, the U.S. is the only idealistic country in the world. And, and don't forget that in 1916, the U.S. were actually invading Mexico and occupying Mexico City. So, so that's the reality. Of course, the U.S. are obliged to follow a, realist, a realistic policy, uh, but they need, basically, they need this cloak of decency, this cloak of moralism uh, over their policy. It's not, the French will say, or the Latin, Latin countries will say, that's, that's hypocrisy. Uh, I don't think it's hypocrisy. It's basically the way uh, 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 the American, uh, uh, the, 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 the American, the Americans are, are, are made. Uh, the United States have been built. Uh, they have to see themselves as carrying values, uh, because basically values are the foundation, uh, are the foundation of the country. Uh, whatever you can say, uh, France, the, the, the foundations of France are more historical and and mm. and. Uh, cultural, uh, while in the U.S. it's not the language, you can be American without speaking English, uh, you can be American while you were born in San Salvador 10 years ago, uh, it's really uh, the idea of joining a, a, a different endeavor uh, from, uh, from, the rest, from the rest of the world. 
And Kissinger, you know, basically uh, was not looking for uh, hiding the reality. And uh, he was thinking, you know, he was basically uh, thinking in terms of balance of power and 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 saying saying it. Uh, he was saying it in a uh, with a foreign accent. And don't forget also that he was Jewish. And in the seventies, there was a really, especially in the the right wing of the Republican Party, there was a strong anti-Semitism. Uh, he was seen by the people from, you know, really from this this right wing, which who took the power actually with Ronald Reagan. He was really seen as as mm. nearly as a foreign agent. Yes. Um, so, um, well, I, I think like uh, I completely agree with what Ambassador Aru said about like this. Uh, the differences between like um, Europe and, and the U.S. in terms of like tradition uh, and vision of themselves. Um, so yeah, I, I, and then I think like one of the strengths of of Henry Kissinger is that when he was National Security Advisor and then Secretary of State. He was able to implement like uh, a realist uh, foreign policy, which at the beginning like was seen with tremendous admiration by Americans. And like we have to remember that uh, with the rapprochement with China, with like the policy of detente, with uh, the end of the war in Vietnam, etc. At the beginning, like he has three, four years where he's really admired by by Americans. But then we will see like after a few years, like this kind of idealism, idealistic tradition in foreign policy that will come back. And we will see in particular during the negotiation of the Helsinki Agreement, like more and more criticism, both from the left side and the right side of the political spectrum, and attacking like uh, Kissinger for his realism and basically for his <coughs> European identity. And I think like here there is something that is not necessarily extremely well known, but where it's for me one of the uh, where I have a lot of admiration for Henry Kissinger and by the way also for Gerald Ford at that time when they uh. decided to uh, to negotiate the Helsinki Agreement uh, so basically which was like the, uh, the the top point of like the policy of detente at a moment where they were extremely criticized in terms of domestic politics also uh, with like the support of like Soviet dissidents like Solzhenitsyn were criticizing deeply the policy of detente or even Europeans who were fearing of a Finlandization of, of Europe. And, uh, and I think like Kissinger decided to continue to pursue this policy despite the fact that he knew that he would be hated for this by his contemporaries. And Ford also did it despite the fact that he knew that in 1976, he would pay the price in the elections against Carter. And, mm -hmm. and I think like the irony of his story is that in the 1980s, Reagan, when he was president, acknowledged that uh, the Helsinki Agreement and the policy of detente was in fact a good thing and probably what would enable uh, later the end of the Cold War and the, in a way, the US victory during the Cold War, despite having been one of the strongest opponents of the, this policy of detente. And I think like here there is a lesson in terms of foreign policy that may seem obvious to many of our listeners, uh, but I think that is important is the fact that sometimes like good foreign policy decisions are not understood by your contemporaries, but like visionary, like statesmen and uh, foreign policymakers, as Kissinger was in his time, 
are able to, to implement this decision and have the courage to implement this decision despite a kind of domestic uh, political opposition. And for me, there is here a kind of like ethics of responsibility in a way he implemented his foreign policy despite knowing that he would be hated for this. And, and that's the reason why, uh, if I may, like a kind of historical analogy, we often compare like for good reasons like uh, Kissinger to Metternich or even to Talleyrand. For me, it's very close in a way to uh, Castlereagh, this great um, British diplomat foreign secretary between 1812 and 1820, uh, who is really the one who built uh, the strength of the British Empire in the 19th century. But for me, there, there is like a, a link between the two men because at that time, like uh, Castlereagh also decided to implement a realistic foreign policy in the UK despite being hated by his contemporaries, despite being like insulted, threatened, including by intellectuals like Byron at that time. And for me, the two men share a kind of ethics of responsibility. And, and this is the reason why uh, I think like the action of Kissinger may be criticized in many situations, but for this particular uh, action, I have like a lot of respect for him. Huh. Yeah. And well, let's um, let's shift gears to Europe. Um, in your book, uh, Jeremy Gallon, you write that Kissinger's career provides lessons for for the old world. And Europe, as, as you just mentioned, is obviously the, the birthplace of, of realist statesmen of the kind of the likes of um, Castlery, uh, Metternich. You spoke of Talleyrand, uh, you could even mention Bismarck. Um, does Europe have, um, you know, Kissinger obviously drew a lot of inspiration from from those uh, statesmen. He even wrote his doc, uh, either his uh, thesis or doctoral uh, dissertation about Castlereagh and Metternich. Um, does Europe have uh, a Kissinger these days, someone who can understand Europe's role on the world stage in realist terms? Or has uh, Europe lost touch entirely with, with its uh, realist past? You know, uh uh, I think it's a, it's a very interesting question, but um, uh, I think like one of the problems of the European project, uh, and, and let's focus a bit on EU foreign policy for a minute, has been to, oh. to consider that the beginning of Europe is 1949-1950. And in a way, like, uh, has built itself by cutting itself from its kind of uh, history and including like its... Uh, tradition of foreign policy, including this, this kind of realistic foreign policy tradition. And so I think you had, in particular at the EU level, and I think at the member states level, in particular in France, it's different because we, we had a tradition of diplomats who had like this kind of realistic vision. And I think like Ambassador Haro is, is one of them who had this also understanding of history that enabled them to, to think foreign policy more in the long term. But like at the EU level, very, there was clearly a lack of historical perspective, a lack of strategy, and also just the feeling that, well, the, the EU didn't have to, to think it's as itself as a kind of global power. And, um, and its foreign policy could, in a way, be reduced to a kind of uh, moral posture. And, uh, and the, the thesis I defend in my book is that by doing this, Europe was lying to itself. And Europe was lying to itself for several reasons. One is that, uh, first, in a world where you have third powers that don't think uh, in the same way as you, that don't think that this is the end of history as Fukuyama has framed at the end of the Cold War, but who think in terms of realistic foreign policy, if you continue to think just in terms of morality, 
at the end of the day, you will not be relevant anymore. And you will just be not able to be an actor of this story in the making. You will just become a witness of this story in the making. And, and secondly, I think Europe was also lying to itself by thinking that by thinking its foreign policy in terms of morality, its foreign policy was moral. I think by its impotence, European foreign policy became in a way amoral. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, in Syria, uh, I, I was struck to see like on the EU side, and again, like I'm more focusing on the EU side rather than the member states, too often like just statements condemning what was happening uh, in Syria without any action, without any attempt to really be at the table of negotiations. And so, uh, yes, I think like in a way we had lost uh, touch with this kind of realistic like foreign policy tradition. However, uh, now we had a series of wake-up calls. I think like we could have like uh, have like earlier wake-up calls because like the Syrian crisis, but also like the war in Nagorno-Karabakh, also like a series of crises in the past, including the former war in Yugoslavia in the 1990s, should have been reminders to Europeans that the way we were designing our foreign policy was not the right one. But with the Ukraine war, we could see probably an evolution. I think like at least in, in Germany, there are certain signs that and, and uh, elsewhere in Europe that things may evolve. Uh, I think we will have to see in the long term if Europeans are really able to change their perspective on foreign policy. But, uh, but yes, I think we had, we had made the mistake and we are paying the price for this today of having cut with this tradition of like a realist foreign policy for too long. Ambassador Aro? Well, I think first uh, we have to go back to, to, to the definition of realism, because in a sense, when you said, say realism, you, 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 in a sense, you entail that you have a, a two computers uh, playing a chess game, you know, really, because if there is a very uh, a scientific definition of the national interest, you know, you can say, OK, so that foreign policy is, uh, is easy to define if you are a realistic po uh, politician, you know, really. Unfortunately, uh, uh, even the realistic politicians are, are human beings and they are committing mistakes or they have their own, not committing mistakes, they have their own definition of national interest, which is actually uh, very often quite irrational. And uh, with, with Henry Kissinger, the best example is Chile. You know, really, why, uh, why did Kissinger consider that Chile could become a major national security threat to the interest of the U.S., you know, really such a faraway country, such a small country, uh, and uh, and you know, also during all the war, the Vietnam War, was he was trying when he was trying to put an end to the conflict. Uh, basically, he was so obsessed by the Cold War that he was going to Moscow, to Moscow, and to Moscow uh, uh, instead of going to uh, uh, to Hanoi. Because, you know, he was seeing the world through the lens of the Cold War. So you have this, this, this really also, you have that to keep that in mind is uh, realism, you know, really is also based on human weaknesses. Uh, and and what, is the, what is the role of the diplomats, in a sense, is try to, be, to guess how the other side is seeing his own national interest. Look at Russia now, you know, really, uh, really I'm reading a lot of people saying that uh, Putin is doing something which is going against the interest, national interest of Russia. But it doesn't make any sense because who is defining the national interest of Russia? It's Putin and the Russians. And, and, and the Russians and Putin have a vision 
and most of and a lot of Russians have a vision of Ukraine which is very particular. So that's that's the point that we have always to keep in to keep in mind. Really, uh, you can't really understand foreign policy or the foreign policy of another country if you don't put yourself in the shoes of the other side. Really, trying to understand from within, uh, having empathy uh, to try to 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 see to guess what will be the foreign policy. The second element, as Jeremy said, is basically that since 1945, thanks to the the U.S. protection and thanks also to the European Union, the Europeans have lived a sort of ahistorical paradise. Uh, Really, 75 years without a war in Western Europe, uh, uh, you know, really, we have never seen that. You know, really, I think we have never seen that for 1,000 years. And, and so we, we, we have been able to afford the luxury uh, to see the world, in a sense, in, through, European, uh, through European lens. You know, we are bringing aid and, and we are defending the values and international, international law. Uh, so far, it was an illusion, but uh, an illusion that we, can, we could live in uh, because there was a big policeman, which was, which was the U.S., now the policeman is, is tired, uh, the policeman is uh, uh, withdrawing, tiptoeing out of Europe, and, and the, the jungle is back. Uh, the, the, the carnivores are back, and, and we see it these days, with, of course, with, with Russia. So, as, as Jeremy said, uh, uh, the Europeans needed a wake-up course. They had Trump, which was a sort of a wake-up call, in the sense that for the first time the American guarantee was uh, in doubt, uh, but now we have uh, 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 we have Putin, uh, but we have also Erdogan, uh, and and there is you know I give the example of Erdogan because it also shows that among Europeans there are some differences. You know, in August 2020, I think you remember that uh, Turkey was was launched really was sending uh, announced that you it was sending a ship. Uh, for uh, uh, exploration, gas exploration in the territorial waters of Greece and Cyprus. And, and basically what France did was to send uh, there uh, uh, planes and ships, really. And actually, the, eventually, the, the, the Turkish ship uh, didn't go. And but but which but and that's what for me was the most amazing, not surprising, but uh, was the fact that the Dauswertigesamt, uh, uh, the, the German foreign 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 uh, uh, ministry, publicly said he called to restrain Greece, Turkey, and France. Uh, because basically the Germans couldn't understand uh, the logic uh, of what the French did, which was frankly quite, in a sense, in geopolitical terms, normal. There was a confrontation between two sides. You are reinforcing the weaker side, which is also, the, which is also closer, closer to you. So I think it was a good example that the Europeans were still reluctant to accept, to accept that. So with Ukraine, we are going to see uh, whether it's a real wake-up call. Uh, and uh, because there will be... A lot. There is there are also in parallel to this new assertiveness of Europe. Mm. You have also a lot of passions in the streets. Or, and the fact is that if there is a peace, an agreement, peace agreement between Ukraine and Russia, Ukraine will make concessions to to Russia because Russia is the the strongest, the stronger side. And what will be the reaction of the of the Europeans? You know, really, are they going to accept to leave the sanctions? 
So that will be, uh, I think, that will be also a good test of whether the Europeans are adjusting to this new world. Um, and speaking of Ukraine, um, I think we should talk a little bit about, about Kissinger because we've talked about him mostly in the past, but he's he's obviously uh, still alive. Um, and he has taken a strong stance for the past few years on, on NATO expansion eastwards. And he's been a proponent of a so-called Finlandization of Ukraine. Um, what do you make of his view of, of Ukraine, of NATO and, and of Russia? And how do you think he would have tried to handle the situation if he were still today in office, uh, starting with Ambassador Aul? Well, you know, actually, uh, by chance, I had a, a dinner with uh, with Kissinger, I think in 20, uh, 2018 or 2019, uh, a dinner offered by my American colleague to the UN. And we, we, we were, we talked, uh, uh, the table, there was a conversation about Ukraine. I don't remember why. And, and Kissinger actually said basically Ukraine should be uh, a buffer state and between the West and, and, and Russia. And there was actually a sort of an agreement uh, around, around the, the, the table. And it was also whatever, we don't use this, this vocabulary, you know, Finlandization or buffer state. But that was, frankly, the wisdom, the accepted wisdom in, in most of the European countries. I was in Bucharest in 2008. I was the political director when we were fighting the French and the Germans, President Sarkozy and Chancellor Merkel, were fighting George W. Bush, who was advocating, you know, really opening the alliance to, to Ukraine, offering the membership action plan to Ukraine. And there was a fight. And as usual, there was a sort of a compromise but a compromise which was understood very clearly by the French and Germans as we didn't open the door uh, to Ukraine. And since 2008, there was absolutely nothing was done on NATO side. And I should say that uh, the, 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 the administrations which followed uh, uh, Bush's, uh, really Obama and certainly Trump, were not pushing for, uh, for the, the membership of, of Ukraine. Uh, so that was really so. Th- let's not forget also that Putin, in a sense, has, is using NATO as a pretext. I'm not sure. You know, there was absolutely no threat of uh, of NATO coming to, uh, to 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 Ukraine. Uh, I think is it's largely a, a, a pretext. But uh, I don't see any other outcome of, of this war. Uh, but a total Russian victory, which which doesn't look uh, cre- really credible, but actually uh, call it neutralization, call it finalization. But I think that uh, Ukraine will be uh, uh, really uh, will be a, a buffer state uh, between the East and the West. It won't join NATO, and and the question of EU is open because joining EU means would mean also basically cutting the, the Ukrainian uh, uh, Ukrainian economy from Russia uh, because through the adoption of all the EU regulations. So that would be also, I guess, something that we have to, uh, uh, we have certainly to, to discuss. If, if uh, I think that, uh, uh, I think that if it was, if Kissinger was the Secretary of State, I think he would have been much more active in, uh, in mm. November and December. And uh, uh, while, you know, basically he will have really, he will have gone to, to, uh, to Moscow. Uh, and I should say he will have tried to find a way out. 
uh, through maybe a sort of European security, a wide European security conference. Uh, he would have said in private to, uh, to Putin, don't worry, Ukraine won't join NATO and we are going to find a way of saying it, but we have to find the, the right way to save the face of both sides. Uh, I should say he would have been more active in, in, in diplomatic uh, in diplomatic terms. But again, that's by definition, um, it's my guess. Uh, Jeremy Guillon, we are aware that you are a little pressed for time. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe a few thoughts on that. And maybe, you know, Henry Kissinger is a man who famously quit that there was no phone number for, for Europe. Would he be a bit suspicious of the EU and its capacity to rise to the occasion? Well, first of all, I, I must disclaim that I, I had uh, the chance to have lunch with Dr. Kissinger like last week in his home in, in Connecticut. Um, so, uh, but I, I would not pretend absolutely uh, say what he thinks or, or reflect like his, uh, his thought on this. I would just refer to uh, an article he penned in 2014 in the Washington Post. And I think when you read it today, it's uh, still extremely relevant because basically... He said, yes, uh, Ukraine should not join NATO, but he also like, said, like, uh, and I think yeah, he should not be caricatured, that Ukraine should have the right to choose freely its economic and political association, including with Europe. He also stressed the fact that uh, Russia would not be able to impose a military solution without isolating itself uh, completely from the rest of the world. And I think in a way it was very prescient Uh, He also said, and I think there was this sentence at the end of this piece, which I think like said a lot about the diplomatic outcome that we may find. And I quote him, the test is not absolute satisfaction, but balanced dissatisfaction. And I think like here, there is also a bit what Ambassador Aru said earlier, like how do you find a solution that is like uh, that uh, enables to to create the basis for a future uh, European uh, security architecture. Uh, And I agree that I think like, um, to to get back also to one of your former questions, many of leaders today don't approach necessarily this kind of crisis, this kind of issue with a kind of historical perspective. And I think like an historical perspective would enable probably to get a better understanding of the constraints and also of the background, the perspective of your rivals or enemies or partners. And from them, try to build a solution that is probably not optimal because like diplomacy is very often, unfortunately, not the choice between perfect solution, but between suboptimal solutions. Uh, But uh, at least to to achieve a a solution that uh, would have prevented uh, a, a war. And so I, I fully agree in this regard, but I think that, and of course, it's it's again just a guess, but that uh, Secretary Kissinger, if he would have been in position, would have probably done a lot to try to uh, prior to the war, try to find a solution, try to rethink what could be in the long term a new security architecture of Europe that would also like uh, provide a certain guarantee of security in the long term for, for Russians and and also respond to certain of their concerns. We may consider that these concerns, according to our criteria, according to our views, are uh, not necessarily relevant, are like unjustified, are paranoid, but the fact is that they exist. So how could you answer to them? Uh, now we are, of course, in a different situation uh, where we have entered into the war. So I think, like, of course, like uh, a different perspective would have to be applied. 
with regard to your question about the European Union, you know, uh, I think like first, uh, the EU has evolved a lot between the moment when there was this sentence attributed to Kissinger and, and now. Uh, I think like uh, Henry Kissinger would probably consider that the EU, uh, in terms of foreign policy, has many structural weaknesses. Uh, I think like uh, the way like our European external action service, like the kind of European Kedorsey, uh, has been structured is not necessarily the best one. I think too often like the EU thinks it's foreign policy in silos. Uh, I think like there is also sometimes a problem of coordination between like the diplomatic services from the member states and the uh, European foreign policy service. Uh, I think like uh, there is also a lack of strategic visions. Uh, however, I think like uh, you would probably also consider that uh, the toolbox of the EU is not completely empty that the EU, in terms of trade, in terms of economic tools, has, uh, has many assets, uh, could use them in a, in a more probably effective way, as we have seen recently with the sanction, but also like on other theaters of operation. I think like, for instance, in Africa, I think the EU could, uh, could use in a, in a better way like its, uh, its uh, policy in terms of development and closely uh, linked it with its migration policy or its uh, broader foreign policy. Uh, I think that the EU has also many assets, but sometimes don't know, doesn't know how to use them. And so I think we try to think more strategically at how to use these tools, how to uh, combine them, how to also not oppose the diplomacy at the member states level with the diplomacy at the EU level, but try to reinforce them, each other. And I think here you need for this um, a kind of like leaders with a, a strong foreign policy vision. And if I may end with like a bit more controversial note, I think like you were asking earlier, um, if we had a if we had a Kissinger in our times, for me, it's clear that uh, at the head of EU foreign policy, since the job of high uh, representative has been created, we have clearly not had any Henry Kissinger in the driving seat, uh, far from this. And I think like, uh, uh, if like uh, European member states uh, and Europeans want to have like a stronger foreign policy, they should also uh, push for the appointment in Brussels of figures who have a stronger political sense, stronger um, strategic vision, and probably more uh, uh, analytical depth and sense of history. Well, thanks a lot, uh, Jeremy. I think you made quite clearly the case to replace philosopher kings with historian king right here. Um, thank you so much, Ambassador Ho. Thank you so much, Jeremy Gallon, for this fascinating, wide-ranging conversation on Kissinger, Europe, realism, Ukraine, America, all put together. So thank you so much. And to all our listeners, I say to you, see you next week. So, Jorge, uh, Ambassador Ro and Jeremy Gallon are out. First of all, I think we, we have to thank Ambassador Ro for coming back on the show. Uh, I think he and Jeremy Gallon were in D.C. at the same time we were in D.C. So there's a bit of a reunion between uh, fellow uh, swamp dwellers, so to speak. Former swamp, recovered swamp, de swamp de dwellers. And uh, so, Jorge, what did you think of this conversation? Yeah, the good old swamp. Well, look, um, look. I think um, this is really the first biopic that we do as a podcast. It, I mean, we've done a lot of different kinds of episodes, 
We've done historical episodes. We've done theoretical episodes. We've done episodes on um, events of, of events of history, but we hadn't yet quite done an episode on a person. I mean, we did an episode on Zemmour, but that wasn't really the same kind yeah. of episode. This is this was really a biopic. I mean, this was a biographical episode looking at the whole life of uh, Henry Kissinger, and not only that, but to, to try to understand Henry Kissinger as a European. And so. They, they, thus the, the title, Henry Kissinger, comma, European. Um, and I think one of the more interesting aspects of his biography is that, you know, he was brought up uh, in Germany. He was brought up an Orthodox Jew. He was very religious, yeah. came from a very yeah. religious family. Um, he left as a refugee. He, went, he arrived in New York, I think, in 1938, which is pretty late when you think yeah. of kind of the, the, the decade of the 1930s. I mean, emigrating out of Germany in 38 is pretty, is pretty late. Um, and what, what I found, found was so interesting is that he eventually ended up back in Germany during the war after he had enlisted. And then as a veteran, once he was back in the U S that, you know, he got into Harvard, he studied, um, you know, got his BA from Harvard, got his PhD from Harvard. Um, so here's a man who had, who kind of, was who split his time, his lifetime, between Europe and America. And that the premise of, for this episode was that that transatlantic life had to have a way of shaping his mentality and the way he approached foreign affairs. And um, I, I thought it was so interesting how we got, uh, we got into a kind of realism and whether Henry Kissinger's realism was a tributary of the realism of Bismarck and Metternich and um and Castlereagh so there, there's this was really really a very rich episode and it was uh one of the first episodes we've done on a, on a man but by by discussing a man we were also discussing the ideas of that man and um really 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 enjoyed this episode yeah it's an interesting conversation I think we will do more biopics in in the future so to speak we've had this idea of having biopics of kind of some of the founding fathers or grandfathers of um of the EU, there's some interesting characters we could cover. Um, you know, people like Adenauer, for example, just simply fascinating. Uh, started their mm. political career in the German Empire in like 1917, something crazy like that, ended up being the Chancellor of Germany in the 1940s. Um, so yeah, so plenty. I think plenty more of these should should come. And if you like those episodes, please feel free to reach out and write a comment on our email, on our Twitter, whatever. Um, and you know, let us know if you'd be interested in more biopics like, like this one. It's definitely something we like. Um, we, we're big history nerds, so please do let us know. Um, I think there's an interesting conversation around realism that we have started to cover here, which is, I mean, realism has this pretension of being um, the only one that really takes into account the reality, it wants to see um, the world as it is and not as it should be and so on and so on. And, but you have to be careful. And I think of this because over the past month or so, there's been a big conversation about why Putin is invading Ukraine when clearly it's not in its interest. The problem, this is where realism, I think, starts to break down a little bit, is that there is no objective definition of what counts as a national interest every country defines it the way they want and i think it was um one of the wisdom of crowd boys either shadi amid or damir marusic was writing an article on this a few a few weeks ago 
There's mm. as many definitions of national interests as they are countries, or even worse, as they are different individuals within those countries. Um, maybe, maybe it is not in our understanding of national interest the best thing to do for Putin to invade Ukraine. But I mean, if he invades, if he manages to win Ukraine, uh, if he manages to topple Zelensky, put a friendly government, and you, you could make the case that he's actually removing uh, what he would consider as a national security threat. Um, now, you could also argue that this is just simply Putin miscalculating and getting it wrong, and therefore, you know, the, um, the realist theory is, is, is saved. But then again, the issue is um, the realist theory isn't always capable of accounting for what is error and what is simply a different understanding of national interest. So it's a complicated conversation to, um, to have. But I think nonetheless, kind of realist impulse of foreign policy is one that we need to have. And there's this great, great quote, which um, I, th I think we, we refer to in our intro um, by, by Kissinger, where he says that a country that uh, wants to make perfection the cornerstone of its diplomacy will reach neither perfection nor security. And I think within the EU, we've been waving our arms over the past 20 years on different issues. And what has it done? Nothing. Um, so it's, 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 it's good to say we want to kind of have human rights as a cornerstone of diplomacy. But if it, if it also means that we are incapable of enforcing not just human rights, but any kind of basic interest, um, then it, it's, a, it's a failure. And I think the issue is, again, this is something we will be talking about next week for our episode on 1848. This is something we talked about uh, on episode 36 with Pierre Manon and Luc van Middelaar. Um, there is a tendency within Europe and especially within the EU of considering that anything that comes before 1945 needs to be forgotten. There's a tabula, mm. tabula rasa in 1945 and any references before that is uh, at, at best suspect. And realism will throw back people to uh, you know 18th, 17th, 19th century diplomacy um, with backdoor deals and mustache twirling uh, diplomats. And I think that's something that inherently is something that sh is looked with a lot of suspicion. But it's also one of the reasons the EU is a bit of a dwarf on the international scene, at least on kind of hard power security conversations. On, on trade and, and regulation, it's a different conversation. But on those matters, um, the EU has little to say because I, I don't think it wants to say anything. I think it's, it even believes it's suspicious to act. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, well, I think we can yeah, wrap nice. this up. Um, thank you to Ambassador Hall. Thank you to Jeremy Gannon. Um, if you want to support us on Patreon, we would really appreciate it because it really, so far, let, let's be fair, it has allowed us to buy new equipment, upgrade our um, uh, subscriptions to for our distribution, for our uh, recording. Um, it has allowed us to create a company, which is a lot easier when we're trying to build partnerships, such as with Mace Magazine and so on and so on. So we want to thank all our patrons because they've really allowed us to professionalize us and they really allow us to kind of look into the future and prepare for, because we're not making money out of this. I don't think that has, has ever been the intent. 
Um, but we also need some staying power if we want to keep doing this. So if you like the podcast, um, your help would be really appreciated. We are also exploring, um, and I know we've been saying that for a long time, and I apologize for people who've been subs- um, who have been our patrons for a long time, but we think we found a good medium for patron because we don't want to lower the quality of our podcast. We want to make sure the people who have been listening to Uncommonly Cincy podcast every week will still get them no matter what. We do not want patron to be an excuse to give you uh, 40 minutes of content in like the, the last half hour on Patreon. We don't want this to be the case. We want to give you the same quality. But we also need to give you something more and we don't always have a time to do something more. But we think we found um, we think we found the right balance between giving you special content and something that wouldn't be too uh, heavy on our schedule. And I think it's the idea of a book club. Um, something we could do maybe every other week. We'd be reading a book on European affairs, on economics, history, or whatever. Um, some, you know, some of the topics you'd likely find on this podcast, anyways, and which would be only for subscribers. So, if you're interested to join the uncommonly decent book club, um, we probably will have to find a better name than that, but probably something along, along those lines. Um, let us know because we're not going to do this if it's not enough of you. There has to be kind of a, a minimum uh, quora. Um, but if we reach that number, I think we would love to do that and it'd be something very special. And yeah, we're experimenting with other ideas. I think we we were thinking about having some uh, weekly clubhouses away or uh, every other week clubhouses or, or, or Twitter Twitter chats, so to speak, where we could interact with you and bounce ideas and have a kind of more personalized interaction with the people who have been following us for a long time. So yeah, so support us on Patreon, like the show, share it, subscribe on Spotify, uh, please, actually, another good one to do is write a review for a surprisingly good way for us to boost our uh, visibility, increase ourselves up the search engine um, of your Google search. So, yeah, all of these things really help. And if you listen to a podcast every week, that's a really good way for us, for you to help us. Anyways. Yeah. I think it's a good place to wrap up. So, thanks, Jorge. Thank you. And to all listeners, to all our listeners. See you next week.